Well, uh, I don't know if you were with us in the spring or not. If you were, you probably remember that we were going through the book of Acts, and, uh, and we are going to pick up where we left off. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12, that's on page 636, if you're using the Bible that's here, and uh, Acts chapter 12. We left off at the end of chapter 11 uh, in the spring before we went into the summer months. Uh, if you were here last week, you heard me say uh, that one of the things that we're committed to as a church, we always have been, we always will be, and that is the, the truth of the Word of God, that what we say and what we present, what we, what we do filters through that. So that's the, the number one filter that we want to go through. To know God's heart, we have to know His Word, so we want to be people of His Word. Uh, I don't know if every pastor has a sweet spot as it pertains to what form of communication he picks, but I have found that for my deficiencies as a human being, for for me to really feel like I'm connecting with the Word of God and, 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 and communicating it well, I do that best, I feel, uh, if I just go through a book of the Bible. Instead of presenting a topic and, and then trying to find verses that fit that topic, and I don't want that to sound as critical as it just sounded, uh, but uh, I've found it refreshing for my own soul to just open a book of the Bible and just go through verse for verse and study it and then present that uh, to the church. So that's what we're doing. Uh, I used to be on staff at a church that had a, wasn't written down, but it was a policy. No series, no sermon series will go longer than six weeks because you'll lose people's attention and you've got to remarket it and rebrand it kind of thing. And, uh, and I just thought like the, the, more, the more I dig into God's word, the more I think we've, we've tried to make it something that's more palatable. Uh, we've tried to convince ourselves that it's a hard book to understand and therefore we just need to dumb it down a little bit. And I just don't think that's true. I think that's insulting. And I think that the Word of God is powerful and living and active. And we need to know it. And uh, we need to know what it says. We need to know its cultural context. And so for that reason, we want to push our church to be in the Word. And so you're going to hear that a lot this next year. You're going to hear a lot of be in the Word. We're going to start presenting uh, just quick opportunities and tools and resources that are afforded to you. And some of those we'll provide to you. Some of them are already out there. Some of them you might already be using. And we want to just make that a big push for who we are, people that are of and in the Word of God. Opportunities will be afforded to you to study it and to know it, not just here from the pulpit, but every opportunity we have to just be in and know the Word, be people of the Word. And I firmly believe that anything that God has in store for us as a church will come to life more and more as we continually entrench ourselves in His Word. So that's why we're going through the book of Acts. I don't have a timeline. I have no idea how long it'll take us to get through from chapter 12 to the end of the book in Acts 28. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I just think we should open up the Word of God together and see where it takes us and see what God has in store for us. So that's what we're doing. Um, 
But we left off in chapter 11, and if you remember just real quick, what we've seen happen is the Holy Spirit comes at the beginning in the book of Acts at what we call Pentecost, and uh, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, a, a, a wind comes through, a, a rushing wind comes through the room, and people start speaking their own dialects and languages, and people are saying outside, like, look, they're all drunk, and Peter comes out and says, no, we're not drunk. We're all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What kind of people do you think we are? Actually, we're just filled with the Spirit of the living God, and he preaches the Sermon of a Lifetime. And after that, thousands of people come to know Christ, and that was the launch pad for the Holy Spirit's work in making the church invented. The ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, the church. So the church is the, the residing place, the holy of holies. The, as we talked earlier about Solomon devote, or, or dedicating the temple, right? Well, the significance of the temple was that it was now a permanent dwelling, no longer the tabernacle. It was, it was a permanent dwelling where the holy of holies rested, the, the resting place of the Holy Spirit. So it's a huge deal. Now what happens is Jesus, if you fast forward, Jesus dies on a cross and after three days rises from the dead. And when he rises from the grave, the veil that covers the entrance point into the Holy of Holies tears from top to bottom. And now that means and signifies that all of humanity has access to this premier place where the Holy Spirit resides. And in Acts, we get the answer to how God's going to make that happen. And it happens by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and we become the Holy of Holies, the resting place of the Holy Spirit. And God does His work through us and in us. And we see the church just explode, and all these things start to happen. And then it gets the attention of the same people that wanted to kill Jesus and put Him in the grave to try to slow down this movement. They're upset. They're amped up even more because we thought we put this thing to rest when we killed Jesus, and now there's all kind of rumors that He's alive, and we don't know what to think. Now, all of a sudden, we've got people speaking in different languages and dialects, and we see these miraculous things being done. It's like we've got thousands of Jesuses now. What, what is going on? We've got to shut this thing down. And so they, they go on this militant spree under, the, under the, the leadership of a guy named Saul to just crush this rebellion, they call it, right? Well, just like God does, because nobody writes a story better than God does, he captivates Saul's heart with grace and truth. And Saul becomes the apostle Paul, and Paul goes and plants churches. But what we've seen here, what we saw was that Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute the church, by the way. And then he gets sent because the religious leaders of the day are like, we lost our best general, essentially, so let's we need to kill Saul. This is what we talked about last, last spring. This guy, these, these religious nuts of the day, are their go-to MO whenever someone rises against them is, let's kill him. Let's just kill him. I mean, how dark do you have to be to say, that's the best way to squash what somebody, somebody says something that I don't agree with, let's kill him, Right? So that's the, that's the reaction of the, of the religious elite of the day. Now, all of a sudden, they want to kill Saul. So the believers figure that out, get word of that, and they send Saul back to Tarsus, where he was from, for three years. 
And where we left off at the end of chapter 11 is that the the gospel has made its way into Gentile territory, into places where these people were not, they were not part of what they all believed were part of the covenant. And as the gospel starts to expand to people who are outside of the Jews, it starts to raise way more eyebrows. It's getting the attention of people. So all of a sudden, they send, the believers send, the apostles send Barnabas into this land, and, and they, they, they see that all the believers went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they were like, Barnabas, go up there, see what's going on. And he sends word back. There's an amazing work of the Holy Spirit happening to the Gentiles. And he realizes this is far beyond his capacity So the classic verses that that maybe you remember us going through where it says that Barnabas arrives and he sees the evidence of the grace of God amongst people that they believed that the evidence of grace of God would never reside on these people. And all of a sudden Barnabas arrives and sees the evidence the grace of God has richly fallen on these people. That they have been grafted into the same covenant And he stayed and he encouraged them, remain true to this. This is a good thing what's happening here. You're going to be persecuted, but stay strong. Stay on course, right? He was an encourager, son of encouragement. That's what his name means. And in verse 24 of chapter 11, it says says that, for he was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. But verse 25 is the one that captivates my attention because it's a major turning point in the life of what we know as the New Testament when it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's almost like up to this point, we've been waiting for the moment where Saul gets called up because we know it happens. We know that the author of most of the majority of the, old, of the New Testament is going to come out of Tarsus at some point and travel on three different missionary journeys and plant churches all over the known world. But we didn't know when. When is this going to happen? And what's going to be the trigger point that gets him to come back into the scene and become the Paul that we know wrote all these letters? And here it is, chapter 11. That's whatever we see it. Barnabas arrives. He sees that the Gentiles are coming to know Jesus in droves. He sees that it's authentic, and he realizes, I I am not capable of leading this movement on my own. We need help. I'm going to go to Tarsus, and I'm going to get Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, verse 26, chapter 11. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's the first time we've seen that word pop up. Christians. Little Christs. Not to get on a soapbox, but that's not at all what that word connotates in our culture now. But in this day, this is people that reflected the image of Christ, Christians, little Christians, baby Christs. And in Antioch, of all places, Gentile territory is the first place that the known world ever heard people called Christians. Prophets were coming and people were coming to know Christ and they were sending people out. And that's where we pick up chapter 12. We left off with the center of the sending 
part of the church, people being sent into ministry. We left off that no longer is that sending place centralized in Jerusalem. We see that sending place being switched over to the town of Antioch. People are coming to know Christ in droves. The gospel is is doing exactly what Jesus said it should do and would do whenever he said, you will be my witnesses. He He didn't say, if you choose to be. No, he said, you will be. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We knew it would happen because that promise making God made that promise and now we're seeing the fruits of it. So the hub, the center, the the main spot where we see the church get launched out of switches from Jerusalem to Antioch, and that's where we left off. But that's also right where we pick up the story. So read along with me in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. We're going to read the first 17 verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. There's a lot happening here. It's a pretty remarkable story, but let's just go through this in sequence here. It starts with an interesting phrase, about that time, about that time. And what it's doing here is uh, it's almost like a, um, I like history books, and it's hard to tell a history, it's hard to tell a story of a history book because there's so much that happened here that you can't just stick 
with chronological order with things. A lot of times as the, as the author is writing, he's giving you, and at the same time, or uh, and five years prior, and you go back, because to build the blocks for what's happening today, you have to know what happened in the past. And that's what Luke is doing as he writes this. About that time, so what he's saying is, as the church is exploding in Antioch, as the, 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 the base of operations, if you will, is shifting to Antioch, at the, around that same time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Around that same time, Herod the king. Now this, there are lots of different Herods in the Bible, so if you're like me, maybe you get confused with what Herod, or maybe you're like me, and I remember it was like in college that I realized that the king Herod wasn't like four billion years old. Every time I heard King Herod's name mentioned, I felt like it was the same guy. I was like, geez, how old is this guy, Right? This is the same guy that was trying to kill baby Jesus, and now he's trying to kill the disciples. Good grief, that guy's old, right? That's what I thought. I was wrong. And uh, so this is King Herod Agrippa that it's talking about here. And he is the grandson of King Herod the Great. Now, how awesome do you think he thought he was? Because instead of taking on a secondary name like King Herod Agrippa, he decided to call himself King Herod the Great. So how do you want to be referred to, sir? The Great. Didn't take on a just the sheer fact that he called himself the Great says a lot about his uh, his character. Says a lot about his uh, his leadership. And uh, so, just for this all to make sense, I think it's important to know that King Herod the Great is the one who wanted to kill baby Jesus. King Herod the Great is the one that felt like his throne was going to be uh, uh, threatened by this baby, by this this baby that he knew enough about the prophecy. To, uh, to be fearful of it. And so when he caught wind that this baby had been born, he demanded that all babies, two and younger, uh, he took a, a, a card out of the, the, uh, the playbook of Pharaoh back in Egyptian times and, uh, and said that all babies, two and younger, should be put to death. Boys. And that was how he was going to cover his bases. Obviously, we know that he wasn't successful at that plot, although a lot, a lot of families were left heartbroken by the actions of this mad king. Herod the Great married a Jewish woman, and Jewish law allowed for his family line then each one of his sons because because he married a Jewish woman. The Jewish law was written in such a way that a whole way down his family line, his sons and his grandsons could claim Jewish lineage. So here we have King Agrippa, and he claimed to be Jewish. The only thing that made him Jewish was his his grandpa married a Jewish woman. Uh, but to him, he claimed that as a political move. See, Caesar knew that he needed someone in this area to keep the peace, and, and, and so if King Agrippa, I mean, if, uh, if, if Herod Agrippa could have an inroad with the Jewish people, it gave him a better chance of being the king appointed and approved by Caesar. And so that's why he did it. It was a purely political move. And we're going to see that play out even more here in verse 2 when it tells us that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, it might not sound all that that, uh, significant to you, but think about this. This is the first time we've seen one of the 12 be put to death. We've seen Judas commit suicide because he was overrun with guilt for turning Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. But this is the first one of the original apostles that we've seen executed for his faith. 
The wording here is important because Herod, it says that in verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, why would he say that? Why would that be there? Because it's going to point us to a reason why Peter is being arrested. It's going to point us to uh, more of Herod Agrippa's character and also how he only identifies with this Jewish culture as a political power move. Look back with me at Deuteronomy. It's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you're using the Bible front, it's on page 107. Now, Herod Agrippa would have known this, and he was going to use it to his advantage. This is Jewish law. This is the law that was... Deuteronomy literally means second law, so this is the second time that the law has been laid out for God's people. In Deuteronomy, it is a retelling of the law. And, uh, and so th- this is how people are to do their business and to live to honor God means to follow these laws. And Deuteronomy is the second time that we're getting told that. That's the word means. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. Listen to verses 12 through 15 of chapter 13 in Deuteronomy. This is part of the law, and Herod Agrippa would have known it. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to the destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of a sword. The reason that it's significant that James is put to death by a sword is because, and the reason that it follows up with significance and say, says that Herod found, kids are playing with the light switches, uh, that Herod found uh, favor with the Jews and saw that this was, that it pleased the Jews. Sorry, that threw me off. Uh, so since, since he says it, Luke puts it this way on purpose. He says that James was put to death with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. The implication is that Peter's the bigger prize. The implication is that Herod wants to, wants to arrest Peter and that James is almost the guinea pig to his experiment of how he's going to do this. So he arrests James under the pretense that he has, ha, has started an insurrection where he is leading people away from the gods they are familiar with. The Jewish leaders of the day, the same ones that wanted to see Jesus put to death, this is going to raise their ears up a little bit. They're going to tune into this because he's saying, listen, 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 we are justified in our behavior. And the Jewish leaders of the day that want to see this this movement of the spirit shut down, they're going to say, yes, that guy knows our language. He He knows the law. I can respect this king. I can get on board with this king, right? And he used that as a basis to bring charges against James and put him to death with a sword. And he gains favor with the Jewish leaders of the day. And when he sees that he has actually gained the favor of these Jewish leaders, 
he has Peter arrested. And, and, and it's, it's told us to that, it, it's, it is given to us in that order on purpose. So that you can sort of know what's happening here. Luke wants you to know what's happening here. What's happening culturally, that there's a, there is a strong resistance against the movement of the Spirit. That exactly what Jesus warned the followers would be up against is exactly what is happening. That when Jesus looked at the followers and said, uh, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When he looked at the followers and said, this world will hate you and despise you because of me. Luke is, is in, intentionally pointing the reader's attention back to these sayings so that we can understand that exactly what Jesus said would happen, this promise-making God, it's happening. But this is where things get real because this is now, you're plucking people out of an elite crowd of people, right? There wasn't many people that were called capital A apostles. And James is now gone. John's brother, gone. And he justifies it by using archaic Jewish law that God came, the grace of Jesus comes in and says this didn't abolish the law, it perfects the law. There's a better way. There's a heart behind law. That's, way, that's the way of Jesus. So Herod knows exactly what to say to the base he wants to say it to to get them to agree with what he's saying. This guy, this Herod Agrippa, if you look back on his history, he's a sleazeball through and through. But he's able to get the base that he wants to agree with him because he knows their language enough to get them to say, oh, yeah, he's one of us. You can make whatever connections you want with that. This is also happening during Passover, whenever it says this happened during the the. Uh, the Days of unleavened bread. That's the days of the Passover. And so he couldn't really execute Peter right whenever he was arresting him because that would, if he wants to stay in the good favor and the good standing of the Jews, he has to follow their customs. And you cannot do something this heinous over Passover. They didn't even do that with Jesus, so they weren't going to do it with Peter. So they arrest him. Based on those bogus charges that they were able to execute James with, they arrest Peter, and his fate is the same. It says that he's guarded by three squads of soldiers, and so that's a squad is four people in this culture. So there's three watches of the night. There's like three shifts, and in any shift, four people would be assigned to keeping an eye on Peter. And that's, that's big because they do not want the same thing that happened to Jesus to happen to Peter. The last thing they need is the bad press of another prison escape, right? So they, they put these four guards on Peter at all times. He's chained to two of them, and two of them are standing as sentries at the door. And any time the shift changes, that's the rotation. So they strip him down because if he, if he escapes, he's going to have to escape and run through the streets naked, which is disgraceful in their culture. Pretty disgraceful in ours too, by the way. Throwing that out there. And so 
they, they strip him down, and they'll let him sleep. But if he sleeps, he's got to sleep chained to these two sentry guards, who they're allowed to sleep too, under the assumption that if Peter decides to try to escape, him being chained to them is probably going to wake them up. So there's two guys standing at the door, two guys chained to Peter. And it says at the end of uh, chapter, five, or chapter, chapter 12, verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's important. Earnest prayer was made to God. If you fast forward uh, in, 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 ver- in chapter 12, of verse 12 of chapter 12, when he realized this, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, which these guys needed to come up with better nicknames for one another. Well, that's John. We call him Mark. Uh, so, and, and where, that's where many were gathered together and were praying. So the believers are gathered together in prayer, and this is where they're gathered. So Peter, Peter catches wind or makes the assumption that that's where they're going to be gathered, and that's where he goes. So at the end of verse 5, when it says, but earnest prayer was put forward for Peter on his behalf, this is the believers gathering in, in earnest prayer that God would intervene to keep Peter from being executed. They're still grieving the loss of James. So now the believers are gathered at John, you know, Mark's place, and uh, his mom's place, who's also, her name was Mary. These people were very generic with their names. Somewhere along the Old Testament, when you had names like Mephibosheth, like they don't use those anymore. They switched to Mary, John, and Mark. And there's lots of those. Uh, This is a different Mary. This is Mary, the mother of John, who they all called Mark. So, anyway, the believers are gathered for earnest prayer. Now, that means that that it is serious. That means that it's committed. That means that they are gathered with an end in mind. Their, Their end in mind as they earnestly pray to the Lord is that Peter would not be put to death, that somehow God would miraculously intervene on Peter's behalf. We don't get real dialogue of what their prayers are, but can you imagine you imagine the fear in them if they can get to James and make it legal? Imagine what they're going to do to Peter. I mean, Peter's the one that went into the Sanhedrin and, 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 and told them off, gave them peace of his mind. Peter's the one that took a beating from them, but still didn't keep talking, still kept preaching. Peter has pushed all the wrong buttons with these people, more so than Jesus did. And they're already amped up. What are they going to do to Peter? There are some parallels here, though, that I thought were amazing. First of all, Peter is sound asleep, by the way. Think about that. Peter is sound asleep. He's so asleep that, the, that an angel of the Lord fills his prison cell with light, the light of an angel, which we've heard already in Scripture is a blinding light. Naked Peter chained to two guys laying on a dirt floor in a prison cell doesn't even stir him up. He is out cold, sleeping soundly in that situation. He knows, unless God intervenes, he knows he's going to get put to death. And he knows it. He's seen these same people do this over and over and over again, and it'd be legal for them to do it. 
He knows what he's up against. And here he is so asleep that an angel has to kick him and say, get up. Like I picture, I don't know if this is how it goes, probably not. But I picture an angel standing and be like, geez, oh man, I never had anyone sleep through this before. And I turn on all the lights, all that stuff. They're like, ah, dude's still asleep. Get up. Right? Peter sleeps through the whole thing. And then he's, the, the angel says, get up. Look, get dressed. Get dressed. The chains fall off of him whenever he goes to get up. Chains just fall off. He gets his clothes on. He wraps his cloak around him. He gets his sandals on. And then the angel basically says, follow me. And he went out and followed him. And it says, he did not know that what was being done by an angel was real. It's like Peter's like, this is a super trippy dream. This is a super trippy dream. This is worse than that whole sheet with the angels dream I had a couple weeks ago up on the roof. He's like, I ate some bad mushrooms with my prison lunch. He gets out of the city, and they have a huge iron gate to get in and out of the city. The only way an iron gate to get in and out of the city could ever be opened or closed is if a government authority approved it to be opened or closed. And it tells us that when they get to this huge iron gate, it opens of its own accord. It opens of its own accord. So as the door opens, Peter walks outside of the city and they get outside of the city and says, now I am sure the angel leaves as soon as they get outside. And Peter says in verse 11, it says, I can't, he, when Peter came to himself, it's like he was like, whoa, wait a second, I'm awake? This is literally happening? And he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You know, for him to say that means he was expecting it as well. When he laid down on that floor, chained to two guards, and fell asleep, he went to sleep completely expecting to get put to death. And he tells us that himself in verse 11. And Peter's case is our case. That's what I think is so remarkable about this. Here he is imprisoned. He's in darkness. He is hopeless. He's condemned by world standards. That's his situation. He is imprisoned in darkness. Those two things are absolutely true of Peter's situation. He is condemned, and he knows it. The world outside is looking at his situation and, and seeing him in a hopeless spot. And the believers are praying because they honestly believe that's the only way something is going to change here. The only way that something's going to change here. The only way that the circumstances of being imprisoned and in darkness and condemned will ever change is if God intervenes. That's the only way. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That was the light that came upon Peter that, he, that got him out of prison. 
That was the light that brought, brought, cast out all the darkness. That was the light that took him out of being imprisoned. That was the light that took him out of being condemned. Peter's case is our case. We are in darkness. We are imprisoned. We are condemned. And unless God intervenes, there's no way we are out of that situation. Unless God intervenes into our darkness, unless God steps casts light into our mess, we are bound in a prison cell. And when God casts off those, those chains and says, here, put these clothes on, the robes of righteousness, the same robes that I put on my very own son and follow me, he opens up every blockade in our way to give us true and lasting freedom. That's what he did for Peter. That's what the gospel does for us. This is a beautiful picture of God's grace in redeeming us all of the mess of sin. There is absolutely nothing that Peter could have done to get himself out of this mess. Nothing. There's nothing that the believers could have done, but they did one thing. They gathered together and they prayed. Now, that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy of the power of the gospel. Now Peter sneakily and quietly works his way through the streets to get to, get to uh, John, you know, Mark's place. And he knows that there are many there who are gathered for prayer. And when he knocked at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And Peter's like, open the gate. It's me, it's Peter. And she recognizes Peter's voice, and she's so elated and so excited that it's Peter, and he's alive. She doesn't even remember to open the gate. I immediately thought of my little Josie when her grandparents come to visit. We have a, a full glass storm door, and so our main door will be open because we're waiting for our parents to get there. And she will run when they get to the door, to that door. And they'll stand there and they'll look at her and they'll make faces and they'll wait for her to open the door. And then she'll turn and run into the living room to tell us that Nona and Papa are there. And all she had to do is open the door. They were standing right there. And believe me, she knows how to open that door. <laughs> and that's sort of what Rhoda's, Rhoda's doing here. She, she knows it's Peter. This servant girl, Rhoda, knows that it's Peter. And she can't believe it. It's ridiculous to her. And she runs back inside and she says, you'll never believe who's at the gate. Peter's at the gate. And they're like, you're outside of your mind, woman. Stop talking to us. They actually tell, they don't say, I added the word woman. But they actually said, you are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. Now, I want to read one more thing here. Let's go back. Peter's kept in prison, verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Fast forward. The church is gathered. They're on their knees. They are praying. They are sweating. They are praying like crazy. Girl comes in. You'll never believe it. Your prayers have been answered. Peter's here. Peter's alive. Peter's out of prison. He's standing at the gate. Oh, my goodness. I was so excited. I didn't even open the gate. He's standing outside the gate. You are outside of your mind. Will you let us pray? So 
But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. It's obviously not Peter. But Peter, who just escaped from prison, mind you, in the same town that he's still sneaking around in, is out there like, let me in. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and what? Read it, verse, verse 16. When they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. <gasps> Peter's here? They just spent hours on their knees praying for this very thing to happen. When they got told that it happened, they didn't believe it. When they got told again that it happened, they were like, it's obviously his angel. He's dead. We're going to keep praying for his miraculous release from prison. but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Because obviously they're, they're amazed right now. They're all like, whoa, my goodness, Peter's alive. Be quiet. Remember, I just broke out of prison. He described to them, verse 17, how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. We're going to get into the rest of this story and how it all ends, especially for Herod next week. I'd encourage you to read the rest of chapter 12 in in context with the beginning part of chapter 12. But there's a couple things that I want us to take away from this. One is that we are in Peter's situation here. Without Jesus, we are imprisoned in darkness and we are condemned And unless God intervenes, unless the light of God shines in on us, we are still condemned. Unless we see the grace of God and and it kicks us in the ribs and says, wake up, we will stay in a prison cell locked up. No matter how nice we are, no matter how good we are, no matter how, how behaved we may or may not be, God's grace, when shown into that prison cell, will remove your chains. It will say, put these clothes on, follow me. I'm going to remove every obstacle in your way to get you exactly where I want you to be. I want you to see something here real quick. It's just a, it's something that I thought, it jumped out at me. Peter's, uh, he's in a prison cell. He's chained to the guards. The angel comes in, wakes him up, says, put on your clothes. As soon as he gets up, all the chains fall off, right? Nobody wakes up. Nobody stirs. He walks out the door. Somehow he gets out the door. The sentries don't even know what happened. He walks out the door with an angel. Another door opens. He's out. Gets up to the main gate of the, of the, of the city walls. Boom. Gate opens up on its own. The angel leaves. Peter gets to another gate where actually the believers are. And what does he have to do? He has to knock. It's proof that not every obstacle that stands in our way goes away just because we are followers of Jesus. It's proof that sometimes we'll have to uncomfortably stand there and knock. And out of all the doors that I bet Peter believed would be open the fastest for him in this whole scenario, that one was the one he thought probably would open the quickest. There's a lot that can be drawn out of that. But Peter now has a task of of pointing these people to a redeemer. He tells the story of how Jesus, how the angels got him out of prison. And he says, pass this story on 
I'm going to go tell it to some other people myself. And the other challenge that I think jumps out at me, hopefully it jumps out at you too, is we can't just say that we're going to pray for something and not believe that it will actually happen. These believers, they earnestly prayed, but they lacked belief, grounded and rooted in faith that what they were praying for actually would happen. If you have that person in mind that you've been praying for that's laying in that prison cell chained up and you don't believe that they actually will ever see the light, are you believing in faith and praying in faith that it'll happen? I don't know what we're praying for. I'm sure we're praying for a myriad of different things. But I don't think the believers in this day really believed that Peter would ever get out of that situation because they weren't looking for him when he showed up. And they didn't believe Rhoda whenever she told him. So God obviously and graciously and powerfully intervenes to answer these prayers, moves mountains to get these prayers answered. And the believers are like, you're out of your mind. It's, it's got to be his angel. We've got to be able to explain this somehow. Doesn't that sound like us? Doesn't that sound like us? I don't know if it sounds like you, but it sure does sound like me far too often. I need to be able to explain it. I need to be able to have an answer. And faith, faith is believing in something that you might not have all the answers for. There are aspects of God's character that I'm not able to humanly comprehend. But I have to have faith believing I was not there when Jesus died. I didn't see it happen with my own two eyes. I have, to, I have faith believing that he is who he says he is. And if he always keeps his promises in church, he always keeps his promises. One of the promises he makes is that he hears us when we call out to him. And if we are going to be people of prayer, people of the word, what we said last week we desire to be, we better be people of faith that believe that God will do exactly what he's going to do. And then when we pray, lined up with what God wants, God's heart can be moved on our behalf. So I say pray in earnest. I say pray powerful prayers. I say weep and pray and hit your knees and believe. And let us not be the believers inside who are having a prayer meeting but not believing any of those prayers would ever get answered. And let's not be people that decide to lay on a dark, wet, dirt cell floor, chained up, because we're too stubborn to wake up from our own reality and grasp this free gift of God's grace that's handed out to us through the power of His Son's death, burial, and resurrection. Church, that is the message. This stuff was happening in the book of Acts over and over and over again. And I believe stuff like this is happening in our culture, but I think sometimes we're too numb to see it. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. 
its richness, its power. This isn't just a book, a collection of stories. This is truth. This is our history. It's the pathway forward. It shows us your heart. And then in faith, we get to respond to it. And then we get to, we get to be like your heart in our actions and in our living. So when we pray, I pray that we believe this stuff will happen. And when we find ourselves and wake up to the reality that we are in the prison, may your grace lead to our escape. May your power lead to our escape. May we realize the situation we're in just like Peter did. And even if it feels surreal, follow and obey and experience the freedom that comes from you miraculously opening gates and doors on our behalf. And when we get to the one that you don't open, may we have the faith to knock and believe that it's the right place to be. And may we as the church not just be people of prayer, but people of earnest, faith-filled prayer, believing that you will indeed do what you say you will do, God. May we be that. May you find us faithful. And as we leave this place, may you give us much grace and may you open our eyes and may you give us opportunities to cast your light into people's dark lives as they are in the prison. And may people come to know Christ because the enduring testimony of Journey Church. In your powerful and holy name, we pray these things. Amen. You're dismissed.